I invite you to take your Bibles, open them to 2 Timothy. We are continuing our exposition of this book. We find ourselves in chapter 1. We find ourselves in verse 8, having finished verse 7 last week. As you recall, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his loved disciple Timothy, his son in the faith. And Timothy was a pastor of a church in Ephesus going through a particularly discouraging time. Uh, being opposed by those inside the church, being opposed by those outside the church, facing doubts concerning his own giftedness and perhaps even doubts about his own salvation. It was all wearying on him, was paying his toll. And, and Paul is seeking really to encourage him, to uh, tell him not to give up, to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in him, to endure the hardship of the ministry, to trust in the Lord, to give you strength, be ready to endure hardship, respond rightly to those who are opposing you. So I have summarized the book, Fan the Flame, Fight the Fight. Fan the flame of God's gift within you to minister to others and fight the fight of the ministry. That that encompasses a lot when you say fight the fight. It means trust the Lord with all things, deal with those who who oppose you rightly, be strengthened in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, trust in the Scriptures and the power of the Word to press on. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul encourages Timothy not to be ashamed of the Gospel. It's really one of the ways to fight the fight is to be bold in your faith. And in fact, that is really the theme that carries from chapter 1, verse 8 through verse 18. I want you to listen for it, kids. Every time you hear the word ashamed, I want you to circle that there in your notes. I think you can do that. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus." Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. I've appropriately entitled my message this morning, Don't Be Ashamed. That is, don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of those who suffer for the Gospel. My message comes right there from verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There's the Gospel, or of me as prisoner, that is, His followers. I do believe this is the dominant theme of all of chapter 1. Kids, how many times the word ashamed show up there? Yes, Nathan? Three times. You see it in verse what? What verses do you see it in? Do you remember? 8, verse 8, verse 12, verse 16. Good. In each of those times, do not be ashamed, verse 8, of the testimony of our Lord. Verse 12, Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. And then in verse 16, Paul commends Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. And if you read into it a little bit, you can see in verse 15, though it doesn't mention the word ashamed, these people were ashamed. He says, all who are in Asia turned away from me. That is, that they were with me and then they were ashamed of me. They turned away from me. And being ashamed of the Gospel is a big issue for us today. It's a big issue for the uh, American church. In fact, even John MacArthur wrote a book entitled, Ashamed of the Gospel. Really, what he's trying to do is, is trying to just set the church back to trust the simple Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because the churches, many ways, are getting away from the Gospel. and They're looking to other things to help them. In fact, I want to read this quote. He quotes from George Barna. I feel old because I was telling my kids in this morning's ride a little bit about my mess this morning. So he's quoting from George Barna. And my kids had never heard of Barna. Um, many of you heard of George Barna? Yeah, most. Listen to what he says. He says this, I believe, this is George Barna marketing the church, that, a, that developing a marketing orientation is precisely what the church needs to do if we are to make a difference in the spiritual health of this nation for the remainder of this century. He adds, My contention, based on careful study of data and the activities of American churches, is that the major problem plaguing the church is its failure to embrace a marketing orientation in what has become a marketing-driven environment. They catch what he's saying there. He's saying that the church really needs to go into marketing and market itself and promote itself. That's what the church needs to do. In fact, that's what is going to help the church through the next, the remainder of this century. This was in the 1990s. So that's what we needed as a church, he says. And that's the failure of the American church. And I would just say, he's, he's basically saying this, don't look to the Gospel. He's saying look to innovation. Look to techniques. That's the key. But Paul here would say, no, that's not the key. The key is not being ashamed. The key is, throughout all of this, right? look to the sufficiency of Scripture. Because it's all Scripture which is inspired by God. Chapter 3, verse 16. It's the Scriptures that can give people knowledge the wisdom that leads to salvation. It's preaching the Word. People are going to have itching ears. And people are going to want to be entertained. And people are going to want to pursue that way. And much of leadership resources and materials today to say that. Scratch their ear. That's what the church needs. That's what he's saying. Unless we think that's new in our age. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. Just a little quote from him. Um, it's called the downgrade controversy. During his latter years of his ministry, there were more and more people in churches getting away from the Gospel. He's just calling them back. And MacArthur highlights that through this book. But here, Charles Spurgeon said this, I trust I am not given to finding fault where fault is not there. But I cannot open my eyes without seeing things done in our churches. And he's writing this, I'm not sure the exact date, but it's got to be 1860s, 1870s, 1880s. Maybe more like the 1880s. He says, I am seeing things done in our churches which 30 years ago were not even so much dreamed of. In the matter of amusements, professors have gone far into the way of laxity. What is worse, the church... The churches have now conceived the idea that it is their duty to amuse people. Dissenters who used to promote protest against going to the theater now cause the theater to come to them. And basically what he's saying is the church in England in the 1880s, 1870s, was seeking to be a theater where you'd entertain people. Pull people in with your ingenuity. Pull people in with your wisdom. Rather than, as Paul said, I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and let that be front and center in all the activities of the church. And I do believe that much of that marketing, much of that driven to entertain is being driven because people are ashamed of the Gospel. Let's find something that works. Let's find something that really make the church big. But what Paul is telling Timothy here, I think, is a little bit different. He's saying that, no, you just need to stay the course and not be ashamed of the Gospel. That is my first point. Don't be ashamed. I I didn't know how to do it. That is the title of my message. It is the theme of everything. It is the command of verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. And it is, I'm telling you, it's a tendency of all of us to be ashamed of the Gospel. I was out in my neighborhood yesterday talking with my neighbor. I, I ran, I've been running in recent days, trying to, trying to lose some weight, get so you can see skinny Steve someday. I don't know if I'll get there. But I, I was out running, ran into my neighbor and talking to him, and um, just started talking with him. And uh, things came up about the economy, 
How many of you had discussions about the economy with your neighbor or friend something? And um, I found myself wrestling. I said, oh, here's a good opportunity to interject the reality of God in this conversation. The, and my neighbor, though, has really not shown a lot of interest in spiritual things. I've talked to him quite a bit, but should I bring it up or not? And, and so here I'm thinking that the next day, I'm going to be preaching about being ashamed of the Gospel. And so that was impetus and motive for me and help that I brought it up. And I said, I'm not going to be ashamed. And so after a moment's struggle, and really there was this period of, of silence, which probably lasted five seconds. I think it lasted, it, it seemed to last like a minute and a half. And God's just saying, Steve, are you going to talk? Are you going to talk? Are you going to say, what are you going to say, Steve? I think it's probably five seconds. It seemed like it was a long time. Finally, I just interjected and something. I said, well, you know what? I sure am glad I have my hopes elsewhere rather than the economy. Uh, our country isn't headed in a great direction. Yeah, you know, you got the debt, got the joblessness and difficulty and turmoil and problems here. But listen, regardless how bad it is, I know that Jesus will bring me into His kingdom. And that's my hope because I've trusted in Him completely for the forgiveness of my sins. And you know what my neighbor did? Yeah, we, we do need more jobs, don't we? And just kind of carried away the, the conversation. He was polite, um, but we just, we just carried on. And, um, but the, you got to sense the struggle, though. And have you sensed that struggle before in your own heart? Whether you bring up spiritual things or not, or whether you let, let the conversation carry on. And I, I just know yesterday, the struggle with me was my own timidity, my own shame of the Gospel. And would, would we take a survey of all of us here this morning... I think that we'd all experience the same thing. We're often ashamed of the Gospel. You say, why? Why is it? Well, why is it that we're so ashamed of these things? Well, one regard is, I think we can't really see these things. It's not like concrete. Much of the Gospel is by faith. But I think in, in some measure also, there's our own pride in that we don't want to look foolish. I mean, that's, that's what the Gospel is. You know that? The Gospel to the world is foolishness. Paul said it's foolishness to the Gentiles. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. They can't see it. They can't understand it. They think that what you and I believe is foolishness. Now, maybe you've had the occasion, as I've had on several occasions, to talk about the Gospel to someone who had no exposure to Christianity at all. I mean, they had no, Jesus, they had no regard for Jesus. Now, we've had some international students in our home before, and that is the case with some of them. Um, but more and more, even in our culture, they just don't know who Jesus is or, or, or what, what it's about. And so, try describing your faith. Now, try, list, try listening through the scope of someone who's never heard of Jesus before. Or maybe who doesn't really know much about church. Well, we believe that God Himself became a man born of a virgin. And he lived a, a perfect life. I'm, I'm not talking a Gandhi life. I'm not talking a Mother Teresa life. I'm talking about a sinless, perfect life. No swearing, no complaining, no lusting, no disobedience, no unbelief. Perfect in every way. But in the end, God died. Well, He, did, he was killed. The Romans killed Him because the Jews incited them to, to kill Him. And His death that God died was a painful, difficult, excruciating death upon the cross. And, and He died this way because, well, there's the Trinity. There's God the Father and there's God the Son. And God the Father was, was punishing the Son, not for the sins that He had did, but for the sins of those who would believe. And, and it's by that death, that sacrifice, that, that bloodletting upon the cross that we can be forgiven. And we just need to believe in Jesus. And he, he showed Himself true because after He died, they put Him in a tomb and rolled a stone against the, the opening of that tomb. Three days later, as He predicted, He rose from the dead. And as we believe in Him, we're granted to share in His resurrection life. Eternal life forever. Now, can you hear that through the lens of unbelievers or people who haven't heard that? I mean, it sounds... There, there's some strangeness there. A virgin birth is strange. We just don't experience that. A sinless life, we've never experienced a sinless life. A dead man coming to life, we just don't see those things every day. God becoming flesh. God punishing someone perfect. Forgiveness just by believing, resurrection from the dead. I mean, all these are categories people we just don't see all the time. 
And it can come across as strange. I would say believe those things, though those things are, are utterly true, but in the minds of others, they may appear foolishness. And there is a power in those things, so don't deny those things. What happens in the liberal church is they, they sense the difficulty of those things and they start, well, he wasn't really born of a virgin. And his miracles, well, they can be explained away. Listen, don't ever try to explain away the miracle because it's no longer a miracle. It's just something that was done. But the fact is it was a miracle. And so liberal churches are ashamed of those things. But there's power in that. Even if it sounds strange in the minds of other people, it creates within us a boldness. It creates within us um, a willingness to stand up in any lack that we have of being ashamed, I think it's because we don't embrace totally what the Gospel is. Instead, rather than being ashamed, we ought to be bold, which is the opposite of being ashamed. We ought to put our beliefs out there for people to hear. It's how the early church operated. It's how the early church grew. It was the evangelistic methodology of the early church. Boldness. Just one word. Boldness is what it was. They didn't have great plans. They didn't have great strategies. They didn't have great meetings. They just had boldness to speak. And, and from there, the, the Word had propagated. And I would contend that that was what the early church did. I would contend that that's what takes place today. When the church really blossoms and flourishes, it's when people are bold to speak forth the Word. You may remember in the early church in Acts chapter 4 and Peter and John boldly proclaiming the truth. The religious leaders heard about it. They laid hands on them and put them in jail. The next day, they were brought before the high priest. For the rulers and elders and scribes to give an account of their behavior. And they basically preached the Gospel. They said, yes, we healed this guy, but it's basically on the power of Jesus. And there's salvation in no other name. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, but the name of Jesus. And, and the, the, the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Sanhedrin looked at these men and they said, they are uneducated, they are untrained, but they are speaking boldly. And, and they were amazed at them. But, but yet they said, speak no more in this name. And they threatened them. And then they let them go. And do you remember the prayer meeting that resulted? The latter end of Acts chapter 4. They praised God. The church did. Praising God for all that had happened. And, and then they, they, they prayed. Here's the request of the early church. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. And grant that Your bondservants may speak Your Word with all boldness. And when they prayed place they gathered together was shaken. Physically, I do believe that God answered in an earthquake there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And as a result, the Word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And it never stopped until 300 A.D. 400 A.D. So the Roman Empire is made into the Holy Roman Empire. And then persecution stopped and then Christians started getting easy and they stopped being so bold. They didn't have a great strategy. They didn't have great plans. They simply were bold and that's how the church went. Now, now think about what it meant for them. For them, boldness meant imprisonment. It meant conflict. It meant difficulty. It's like Phil read for us in Acts 16 today. It meant conflict with the religious leaders. It meant more imprisonment. It meant kick out of the, the city. In the case of Stephen, it even meant death. Now do you know why Timothy might be tempted to be ashamed of the Gospel? Because if he wasn't ashamed, it might for him mean imprisonment and it might mean death. That's what it meant for Paul. The whole premise of this letter is that he is soon to die. Chapter 4, verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He was in prison about to be killed by the Romans. The head was going to be lopped off. And that was what it meant for all the apostles. They all died for the Gospel. Peter, Andrew, James, Matthew, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, they all died as a martyr. Except for John, who was exiled to Patmos, which is a prison island, much like Alcatraz. So he spent his days in a prison. And so for Timothy to be bold of the Gospel, he'd face all those things. He had every reason to be ashamed of the Gospel. Now what about you? you have reason to be ashamed? You're not facing threats of imprisonment. Last I checked. Um, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you if you're bold of the Gospel? Someone might make fun of you. Right? What are you going to say, Grant? You want to say something? <laughs> you die and go to heaven. That would be the worst thing. 
That doesn't happen in America though, right? Maybe some. Very rare. The worst thing is maybe you, you, you cause a relationship to, to cut off or cease. Maybe that's a good thing. Uh, the worst thing is maybe, you know, you have some problems at work. Maybe your neighbors don't really like, maybe they egg your house or something. I, I don't know. Not a lot. Maybe they smirk at you. Maybe they'll be polite. Just be bold with the gospel. I mean, think about every conversation you have. I, I would encourage you to think this. How might I turn that conversation spiritually? I might give a testimony or witness for Jesus Christ. Let's turn it right. You say, well, how can I do that? Well, I say pray. A good friend of mine says evangelism is 90% prayer. Pray. I think also just saturate yourself in the Word of God so that it's there. I would say find joy in God. It's not just, it's not just getting baby. It's, it's finding your joy and your happiness and your delight in God that you want to share that with other people. Pray up for opportunities. Pray for courage. Pray even in those five second slots of silence when God's pulling your God, help me, help me to speak. Well, Paul's counsel here is not to be ashamed of the gospel or of me as prisoner. Those two things. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of a crucified Savior that we follow. Don't be ashamed of that. But there's something else. Don't be ashamed of Paul. Don't, don't be ashamed of someone suffering for the Gospel. That's a strange thing also, right? I mean, you think about why would Timothy be ashamed of Paul? Paul meant everything to Timothy. He was his spiritual father. He took him right away on the missionary journeys. He was a support. He was a, a friend. He owed everything earthly speaking to Paul, heavenly speaking to Paul even. Why, why would Timothy be ashamed of Paul? And I think here's the idea. To... To stand with Paul means to join Paul's lot. It meant to join Paul in prison. It meant to join Paul in his sufferings. In fact, that's what verse 8 continues on to say. Don't be ashamed of me, but rather join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. Because when you're not ashamed, you're bold. When you're bold about Paul, giving allegiance to Paul, you will suffer for the Gospel is what he said. It's my second point. First point, don't be ashamed. Second point, be ready to suffer. Now, again, for us in America, these things sound strange because there's so little suffering for the Gospel today. And sometimes when people suffer for the Gospel, it's their own sin, it's their own fault or they're suffering for the Gospel. Occasionally you'll hear news that someone was fired from a job by saying that saying something on their Facebook against homosexuality. You know, on their own time, they'll, they'll maybe get fired from a job. Maybe. If you might dig, you might have more than that. You might be restricted in the things you can display on your desk at work, or maybe restricted in the things you can say. You, you don't say Merry Christmas to our customers, or, or something of, of that nature. But suffering is hard like Paul was calling Timothy to do. Paul called Timothy to join with me in the suffering. So everything that I'm suffering, Timothy, you join with me right there in that. Basically, Paul was writing him an invitation. Paul, will you join me? Not for a birthday party while I was happy. Why don't you join me for the dungeon party? In the dungeon where we can come. And everything that I'm suffering, hardships, distresses, persecutions, famine, negative, come and join with me in that. I mean, you, you gotta, I mean, we could just read these words and just kind of go over them, but, but I want you to read them for what they are. Just like a non-Christian hears the Gospel and finds it foolishness, finds it strange, I want for you to listen to this. He's saying, join with me in suffering. Come, have a hard life. That's what he's saying. Be bold enough with the Gospel that others bring you here. Now, in America, I'm telling you, these warnings sound crazy. But in other places of the world, they're, they're very real. I remember speaking with a missionary, um, one of the men from Leadership Resources, who's, who's really ministering all around the world to pastors in, in kind of far out places where there's not a lot of resources. And uh, he told me that one time he was in China and talking with a Chinese pastor, the circumstances surrounding his ministry. And, and um, the Chinese pastor, I'm not sure if they were working through Second Timothy at that time or, or what, but he was talking about the suffering in his ministry and he said how he... 
he sort of felt bad for his converts that he had. He says, when I tell others the Gospel and they believe, yes, their life improves. It gives them a hope. Uh, they have happiness in their soul. It gives them encouragement to press on through the difficulties that they have. He says, but in many ways, their life gets worse. They face persecution around them from their family. Oftentimes at work, they don't get promoted from their job if they're a Christian or they get demoted. Um, sometimes their children are denied entrance into the schools, so it's going to even affect their children. And it's hard. And, and the pastor said something to this effect. In a way, I feel sorry for my converts because I haven't made their life better. I've made it worse. Now, you, you got to take that in context. Okay, Really, their life isn't better. Their life is a whole lot better. But earthly speaking, their life is a lot worse than it was before they even believed. And, and that which is true in China is certainly true in other countries as well. Far more than here in America. And the temptation there is, is very strong not to stand. It's, it's very real. I mean, we feel it. And if we feel it, certainly they feel it. Even in the days of Paul, there were many who chose not to suffer. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says this, You are aware of the fact, Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Here, here Paul was suffering, as any Christian might suffer. He was, he was brought before the authorities to give an account for why he was in prison. And all who are in Asia, that is probably all the believers... Everyone who could stand up for him and give a testimony for Paul all turned away from him. And then he names two of them, Phygelus and Hermogenes. And these are two people that Timothy probably knew. Like even these people turned away from me, Paul is saying. The, the temptation is very real to be ashamed of our Lord that may have been the issue with Demas. Chapter 4, verse 10. Demon, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Maybe he didn't want to stand bold. He, he cowered away. Phinisophorus, verse 16, is contrasted with these people in verse 15. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Phinisophorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. You've got to catch what's going on here. Paul's in this dungeon someplace in Rome. This pit someplace. Wasn't well advertised. Not like there's a big Leon sign saying, "Hey, welcome to Rome, Onesiphorus. Here, come here and see the prison. Right here's where it is." In order to find Paul, he had to he had to knock around. He had to ask around. He had to see the prison officials and say, "Do you know where's the dungeon? Where's the prison? I need to find my friend. His name's the Apostle Paul. What would have come back to him? Oh, you're you're a follower of Jesus, huh? You mean?" You're a friend of that man who's on trial for heresy. Do you really believe what he believes? And maybe there's some mocking there. Maybe there's some threat about, well, if you're his friend, you might as well join him in the pit as well. Then maybe it was said, oh, I don't know where he is. <laughs> so you got to go and ask someone else. Right? And Paul, you're a friend with that lunatic? You're one of his followers as well? But Anisiphorus says he was not ashamed. He was not ashamed of my chains. I was I was dirty in the dungeon, and I was not he was not ashamed. And rather than pulling a Peter and denying Paul from fear, as Peter did with Jesus, Anisiphorus continued until he found Paul and ministered to him in the dungeon. And who knows what sort of suffering he joined with. Paul in that prison, but I, I sense that he was some. He wasn't ashamed of Paul. He wasn't ashamed of his sufferings. Rather, he, he encouraged him. Look what it says there. He often refreshed me. Verse 16. Right, Coming often. Maybe Onesiphorus was bringing him food. Maybe he's bringing him water. Maybe bringing supplies. Maybe washing his clothes. Maybe giving him something for his hair. Maybe giving him some perfume. Who knows? But often refreshed me. I think the idea there is, is ministry over a long period of time in the midst of difficulty. And Paul was, was so struck by this that he said in verse 18, the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Just longing for Anisiphorus to be rewarded in that day. Because Paul had been so greatly gifted from this man. And they says, you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So Anisiphorus was in Ephesus. 
was in Rome. Timothy knew him. He's a great friend who stood firm. And Paul is saying, why don't you be like Onesiphorus and suffer hardship with me as he did. He wasn't ashamed. So I'm just thinking about what, what kind of shame might we have associating with those who are, who are believing and trusting the Gospel. I'm just trying to think. Of what we, you know what? We might face some financial hardship because we give our resources to those in need. Onesiphorus poured himself out. Of, that, might, that might mean suffering for Christ. It's to live at a lower standard of living than you're able to because you're helping. It might mean that we suffer fatigue because we're giving all our time to help those for the cause of Christ, the propagation of the Gospel. It might mean also that we are misunderstood. It might mean that we're seen as foolish. It might mean that we're called names. Oh, you're so old-fashioned. Get with the 20th century. 21st century. Get with the, I'm so old-fashioned because I'm still in the 20th century. Get with the 21st century. You... You should have lived with those. You're so out of touch. You're a Puritan. And I say that those things really can hurt. I remember a, a chance opportunity I had. I was on a plane, and um, you know, I had, had a chance to meet an older man. And I, I had my Bible out. And as it turns out this man had been in ministry a long time. Uh, you might know him if I. I named him. He's, he's kind of older, but he had a ministry crash, if you will. Um, some things were written, and then some people got on the bandwagon and basically crushed his ministry. It was a worldwide ministry, prospering, flourishing, crushed his ministry. And I got into something talking about how like death is the worst thing that someone can do to you. And, and he staunchly refused. He said, no, that's not the case. I said, what do you mean? What's worse than death? I mean, Grant, you basically said, yeah, death is the worst thing. And I was convinced, I thought death was. And he said, no, to have your name pulled through the sewer and be slandered and crushed and criticized and gossiped against and then to have to live through that whole thing, I would rather have died, is what he told me. I even told him Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? <laughs> Who are you going to dread? I mean, God, God's going to protect you, but He said no. And, and it took me some time to process through that. And it just says that the, the shame of not having a good name is difficult. Maybe that's some of the things we find struggling in America. So don't, don't minimize that kind of struggling, that kind of persecution, that kind of suffering. Kids, you may be ridiculed in the classroom because you don't believe everything the scientists put forth. You know, I put on my blog uh, about a visit we made to the Dinosaur Museum in... Um, where is it? Where? In, in Colorado. Uh, the big, big dinosaur place. They found a lot of dinosaur bones and, and there was a lady at the, at the place and she was handed... Look, look at this. this. This bone here is, whatever, 16 million years old. And I said, really? How do you know that? And she said, oh, carbon dating. Carbon dating has proved that. And, and I didn't feel like that was the, the time to argue carbon dating. I, I, I went back and looked at carbon dating because of um, the number of half-lives are fairly quick. Even they say that carbon dating, even the scientists that believe in evolutionary sciences, carbon dating can only date to 60,000 years, if 60,000 years were so. You can't date to the millions of years with carbon dating, but that's what this gal was so positive about. Now, there are other things that they try to date with other than carbon dating. But carbon dating is the thing. And she was so assertive and so confident. And, and kids, maybe if you get educated, you might be able to speak a little bit about that. And your professors might, might ridicule you for not believing these scientific facts when actually they're scientific assumptions. And you just point out their assumptions and you might face persecution. You might be ridiculed by your peers if you don't engage in their sinful behavior. Come on, join us! It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, that those who engage in sinfulness not only do it, not only say it's good, but they encourage others to do the same. So those who are in sin and sinful activities want others to join them. It feels better that way. Because the more people you can get around and engage in your deviant behavior, the easier you can do that with a conscience because everyone else is doing it. And you might get ridiculed because you're not engaging in the sinful behavior because you stand for Christ. 
You may be scorned by your boss because you won't go out to after work with the boys, preferring your family instead. I remember speaking with an accountant friend of mine who was a big six accounting firm and uh, they're trying to lure this big customer and, and then after kind of their deal of the day, they were traveling and then they went out to this thing and, and as soon as my friend was in this environment, he saw what it was and left and the boss was not happy with him. And he says, I can't do it. But we need to get this contract, but I can't do that. And there's great tension that was suffering because he was walking a righteous life. And these are things that we might endure as followers of Christ. Well, the good news is this morning that we don't have to, to gear up the strength for us to do it ourselves. We don't need to find the boldness in our own strength. We don't need to find the courage in our own strength. No, it's the strength that God provides. This is like so much of the Bible. It's always the message of the Bible is to, to walk righteously, but trust the Lord in these things. And that's what we're going to see here. Look again at verse 8. By the time we get to the back, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, and I believe what he's talking about there is suffer for the gospel, not in your own strength, but suffer for the gospel by the strength which God gives you. We're going to see that in chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. It's a passive verb. You therefore, my son, be in strengthened with the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you're going to see time and time again, that's a theme throughout all this, this epistle, right? You just trust yourself in, in the Lord. Though people are going back and forth and back and forth, chapter 2, verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having the seal. The Lord knows those who are His. God knows those are it. Don't worry about if they get the last word and they think you're scum life and they go off. You said, you know what? God knows those who are His. Or in chapter 4, when verse 16, when all deserted Paul, in verse 17, he said, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear In other words, God was standing with me and strengthening me to be bold so that the Gospel would continue to go out. I wasn't standing on my own strength, Timothy. I was standing on the strength of God, Christ Jesus. And then His promise was this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and He will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever again. And He just knows that that He's going to support him and God is going to strengthen him. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy Trust in the power of God. That's the point of chapter 1, verse 7. God's not given us a spirit of timidity, but He's given us power. It is a spirit of power, probably. A spirit of love. He's probably given a spirit of discipline. He's given these things to us. He's given us power. We just need to rest on that power so as not to be ashamed. So I just say, church family, trust the power of God. It's my third point. Trust the power of God Right, verses 9 and 10, and we'll go through this quickly. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, and then speaks about the power of God, speaks about the gospel, which is the power of God. In fact, if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, Paul was speaking about the message of Christ crucified. To, to the Jews, the stumbling block, to the, the Greeks, it's foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. You want to be energized for the work of God. Be energized by the truth of the Gospel. The power of God. Verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Paul describes the power of God about seven or eight different phrases. And these are powerful. They're some of the most richest words in all the Bible. I don't think they're known very well. I really didn't. These weren't verses I went to in terms of talking about the Gospel until I memorized 2 Timothy. And then I'm like, these are great verses. We ought, we ought all, all of us to memorize verses 9 and 10. But let's just pick it apart phrase by phrase and think about it there. And then we'll put it all together. That God has saved us. Catch the subject Catch the direct object. God saved us. That's the core of the Gospel. It's the work that God does in our souls. We don't save ourselves. God is the one who does the saving. It implies that we were in trouble and needed rescuing. I think a good illustration that's appropriate to that today is the hurricane. 
right? Where the hurricane's coming, and we know it's coming, but it's smashing. The wind is blowing. The hail is coming. It's pelting our house. We're losing power. We didn't realize we're in that much trouble, but we're losing power. Our house is starting to flood. You know, we can't get our car out of the garage, and the, the river is going up and up more and more. Our windows are broken. We have no resources at our disposal. We cry out, Help! And someone comes along and saves us and rescues us in their little motorboat right, that they normally fish with and take us out to safety. That's what Jesus did for us. He rescued us. He saved us from our sins, which had brought condemnation upon ourselves. And by dying upon the cross, He paid a ransom that by believing in Him, we are free. Where once our mind was darkened, God enlightened our mind. Where once we were blind, now we see. Where we were dead, we now live. Where we were far off, we were brought near. And Jesus Christ saved us. He saved us. You know, He saved us. He called us. Right? Verse 9. He saved us and called us. How? He called us with a holy calling. That is, He calls us to live a life of holiness. See, when God saves a soul, He transforms a soul. He doesn't just save us from our sins so as we return to our sins. He doesn't rescue from our sins so that we continue in them. No, He saves us from our sins that we might be holy and blameless before Him. He saves us to be a holy people, 1 Peter 2.9. He saves us to serve Him. We are new creatures in Christ. We are His workmanship, which God creates in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God calls us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And that's the call for Timothy. The call to suffer is a, it's a call to be holy. And that's a call. We are called to be a, a holy calling, right? Don't suffer because of your unrighteousness. Suffer because of your righteousness. Suffer because you're a Christian. If you have questions about that, First Peter is a good book to read. Don't be surprised if fiery ordeal among you comes upon you because you're a believer. He saved us. He called us to a holy calling. Thirdly, He saved us not by our works. Look at verse 9. He saved us and called us to the holy calling not according to our works. And there's the great reality of the Gospel, right? It, it comes to us free of charge. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't work for our salvation. We don't repay our salvation with works. Rather, respond in joyful service to God who saved us and called us. And here, church family, this is oh so important that you realize that your salvation is not your works. Um, this past uh, summer, uh, when I was out at my in-law's place, some Mormon missionaries came to the door. And they knocked on the door, and I didn't. Really, my mother-in-law was talking to them, and I said, "Oh, we got some Mormon missionaries. This is wonderful." And I kind of talked to them and talked to them about how you get saved. And and the guy basically says, "Yeah, well, you're saved through believing in Jesus and by keeping His commandments." And uh, so I just said, "Well, how are you doing on that?" He says, "Well, I'm believing. I'm just doing my best. That's all God says." I said, "Just doing your best is all God says. Is that really what He says?" Love the Lord your God with all your heart. So doesn't He say to keep everything? So if you're going to say that you're saved by believing in Jesus and keeping His commandments, you better keep all of them. How well you do at keeping your commandments? And I said, can you name the Ten Commandments? Mormon missionary. He stumbled around. He could name one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> all right, well, let me tell you then. So I told him the Ten Commandments. I started going through them and just started showing are you, how well you're doing to keeping the commandments. And you saw I was doing pretty bad. And he said, right, so what's your point? That's what the guy said. I said, well, the point is, you don't ever think that you're going to be saved by your works. You're going to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. And don't add anything to it. And they basically said, no, we're saved by grace. And I said, that's what you say, but that's not what Mormon theology says. And you need to be careful about it. You need to think about that. That we're saved by grace. And I just say, if you miss that, you're going to have a works mentality, which, by the way, is in all of us. We all have this works mentality. We think that we need to be rewarded for what we do. We think we need to deserve a reward. We think that we've earned something somehow, but we haven't earned anything. There's zippo that we have learned, earned regarding our salvation. Totally unmerited, totally undeserved, by grace through faith. We just cry out to Jesus for help and He helps us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He just takes us and brings us and gives us rest. And we can see how great the grace is in this next phrase. That He saves us by His purpose. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. In other words, it was God's purpose to save us. He's the one that entered the storm on a rescue mission to save us. He's the one that came to earth with a saving plan. He's the one that He initiated it, who carried it out, who will bring it to completion. It's His own purpose and grace. People think they're saved of their own will. First John, John 1. As many as received Him... See, that's us, right? To them He gave the right to be children of God. And John says they didn't receive Him on the basis of blood or of name or the will of flesh nor the will of man. It was God's will that saved people. Unless you doubt that, even look at what verse 9 ends with. It's His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Literally, before times began. Here's what this verse says. Before time began, before the creation of the world, it was in God's mind, He purposed in His heart to save us by grace. Before we'd done anything good or bad. Before we even existed. God knew us by name. Knew where we'd be born. Knew when we'd be born. Knew how the Gospel would be brought to us. He would change us and transform us to bring us into His Son. All before time began. So you start thinking about, well, what does that mean? It means before time began. Before Adam and Eve even ever existed. Before the human race even fell into sin. God knew full well that sin was going to happen. And God knew full well those He chose to bring unto Himself. And He brought that. God knew full well He sent His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And what you see here is that Jesus Christ was even given to us before the world started. Look even what it says. The tense of the verbs. If you argue here, His purpose and grace, it was given to us. It was granted to us. Before time began, it was given to us. It's like we were saved before the foundation of the world. Now in time, we were called and we were saved, certainly, but that's where Ephesians 1 makes sense, right? Ephesians 1 speaks about how in love He predestined us to adoption as sons, how He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It's God's causing and God bringing that about is what He does. Before time began. That's, and that, by the way, that is grace. That's the purpose of grace. That's the, the explanation of grace. Grace is totally nothing us. And if we think it's our faith, it's not. Paul says Ephesians 2, 8, 9... It's not of great, not of even their faith is not of yourselves. Otherwise, you'd have reason to boast. He saved us, he called us, not by our works, but by His purpose. How did He save us? In time, He saved us by the appearing of Jesus. Verse ten. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This is Christmas. This is the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. This is God coming into the flesh. The plan for eternity past stepped into time when Jesus Christ put on flesh and blood. He came out of the shadows into the light. He stepped onto the stage to accomplish everything that God had given Him to do. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, offered up as our Passover lamb. And through our salvation, was granted to us. And though our salvation was granted to us in Christ Jesus, from all eternity, it wasn't paid yet until Jesus came into time. It was as if God, God saved us on credit. He granted us grace, but then He came in time and paid the debt. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 3. And He paid for it upon the cross, dying for our sins, dying as a substitute in our place, taking the wrath of God for us. That's what Paul highlights for us. So Christ Jesus came. Here's, look what else He did in verse 10. This is, I think, our seventh observation. He abolished death. He abolished death by dying Himself. Not that He did away with death. We all will die. Every single one of us. We will die. But death doesn't have any power anymore. He took away the sting. Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And though Paul was surrounded by the, the smells of death around him, he knew that, that Jesus Christ had abolished death experience. Oh, finally, He brought life. He brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. That's what the end of verse 10 says. He brought life 
and immortality to light through the Gospel. That is, Jesus Christ brought light. He brought immortality to light. That he, he, he brought conquering death so we can live forever. This is Easter. We see Christmas and Easter really in the same verse. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can live on. Paul is looking forward to that promise of life which he mentioned in the very first verse of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life. Well, how is that going to strengthen us so as to not be ashamed and to join in suffering? I do believe that the more you understand the Gospel, the more you understand God's grace, the more you understand what Christ did, that will give us the boldness. The more you you see it live in your heart, the more you're not going to be ashamed. I want to close by telling you about Polycarp. This can be powerful in your life. Polycarp was a disciple of John. John lived a long time, dying maybe 95 A.D., Polycarp knew him, was discipled by him, and Polycarp lived a long time as well. He was brought before the Romans and uh, said, basically, out with the atheists. Christians were accused of being atheists because they didn't offer up incense to the Roman emperor, who is the true God. So Christians were accused of being atheists. They said, out with the atheists! And Polycarp was standing there before the emperor and all. He said, yes, out with the atheists! Kind of backing it back to them. Boldness in his death. And then basically the emperor said, here's the flame, here's the fire, I can put you on that fire and I can burn you. Are you scared of that, Polycarp? Polycarp said, no, I'm not scared of that. That fire will last for just a moment, but the eternal fire will never go out. So I can endure that one, but I'm not going to endure the eternal fire. He says, will you, come on, deny Jesus, offer up the incense. And then that famous statement says, 80 and 6 years... I have served Him. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? And so, 86 years old or more, burned at the stake for not being ashamed of the Gospel, for willing to suffer, because I think He knew the power of the Gospel. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? And that's the very thing that's going to give us the power in not being ashamed. is trusting in the power of God through the Gospel. So, let's pray. Father, these words are so rich and they're so helpful to our souls. I pray that You'd stir our hearts afresh, O God, in them. Give us a boldness that we might know some of Your suffering. As Paul said, he filled up the affliction, what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ, Colossians 1.24. I pray You'd stir those within us, God, that we might be bold, that we would willingly suffer for the Gospel. All those things. Shame, difficulty at work, difficulty at neighbor, relationships, because we believe in the realities of the things to come. Use my feeble efforts, O Lord, to bless Your people, whose name we pray.